There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, this is Tyler Jones, and you're listening to The Element Podcast. What's happening, all my woods people? We are sitting in an adjoining, much better house than the mouse house right now. <laughs> I'm glad to be over here and podcasting in this room, man. It's uh, it's just a touch less musky than the the mouse house. It here. is. It is a little bit less musk involved in here, but there's a little bit more, well, I would say more mess, but the mouse house is pretty messy right now, too, yeah, so, yeah. you know, uh, it's just... Messy old mouse house right here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all right. there is to it. It's all right, dude. It's all right, man. Uh, my house is a spider house right now. <laughs> Ooh. We had the orchid man come over and spray, and uh, he sprays around the outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, every way, when he does that, like spiders just come inside. Oh, yeah. I don't understand. Sneaky spots. I don't get it. <laughs> Sneaky spots. <laughs> uh, we have an awesome guest who has been on the podcast uh, at least twice that I know of. Mm-hmm. We did... Uh, I know we did one kind of long episode with him in the very beginning, like episode four, I think. This is like our first guest, yes. Whit Fosberg from the TRCP, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. He was like our one of our first guests. He's also just, he's been there, done that. And so like knowing that, I was super intimidated. I remember we had a much different, more basic setup uh, podcasting-wise, and we had never done an actual phone interview. We'd actually just came off of a failed phone interview like the <laughs> oh, week that's before. Right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I was literally just on the edge of my seat the whole time. I don't think I listened to a word Wit said that, that podcast. But then he came on and <laughs> talked about, he did a big buck breakdown because he shot a giant up in like the place that giants don't exist in yeah. the Northeast, you know, and um, and now he's back. And what is good about this episode that 
you guys are going to enjoy as opposed to other conservation uh, media a lot of times is that this is all about positivity. That's right. Boom. <laughs> Good things, baby. Good things. Dude, that's your, that's your thing, man, is optimism. That's and it. I knew you would eat this up, dude. I love it, dude. I so love it. We're going to talk about all the good things that are going on in North America right now, and there are a lot of them. So uh, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. But in the meantime, before we get to that, you, well, we, and you, Nosotros. <laughs> Nosotros. Uh, it's, never mind. I'm not going to go. So we have been doing uh, uh, our own thing lately, pretty much. But we did go squirrel hunting. Uh, and I don't know if we even talked about this on the podcast because we've been so irregular. It's been a... It's been a lot of work in 2019 for us, man. Yes, it um, has. My, mine has been more just on the labor front end. You've been holding it down on the element side of things a lot. But uh, just a lot of things happened at the end of 2018 and beginning of 2019 that it just kind of threw us into a whirlwind of, yeah. of sorts. But yeah. uh, we did get to go have some fun together we two did. weeks ago. Yeah, and it was fun. Like, Oh, my gosh. It was uh like sometimes when we go out, we we're like, okay, we got to go hunt some pub for some deer, and it's going to be a you know literally like you know I hate to say this, but it's going to be kind of a drag probably you know like we're not going to see many deer, and then we're especially gonna, when you get your wig out and stuff like yeah. <laughs> and then and then we're going to have to like midday we're going to have to come in rush a lunch real quick do an interview at this time with somebody for the podcast wrap it up edit it and spit it out before the afternoon hunt and it's a lot of work. And when we're not hunting together, so like, i.e. now during mm-hmm. non-hunting season, it's like uh, getting podcasts done can be uh, a lot of work. It's yes. like, it's just, we, we pretty much do what probably a lot of you listeners do and we work, you know, a lot of hours. So um, getting together has been a chore, but we have done it and we got to, uh, we got to do the squirrel thing a couple weeks back. And like I said, I don't even remember if we've talked about this much. But we're going to be releasing the film on it. I'm hoping uh, this coming Tuesday, which is going to be the 19th, I believe. And uh, it was pretty awesome. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was a uh, just kind of like slow. It was a real slow morning, and then it like worked into the afternoon where it started picking up. And then by like the golden hour, it was just crazy. Like squirrels were just flying everywhere. Just as a tease, I'm pretty sure I shot four squirrels in less than a minute. Without without, without taking a step. <laughs> it was unreal. You're it just going to awesome. have to watch the footage yeah. to see. I don't know how well it was cop- captured. I haven't got to see this yet, but... Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah, good. It, yeah, I didn't do a great job, but you you did uh, capturing your own shots. Did I really yeah. capture my own shots? Yeah. Did I have a, a camera on tripod or something? No, I don't just remember. your uh, just barrel. Gun barrel. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I had yeah. a GoPro on it. So. Yeah, cool. It, it was... It's cool though like they're close enough where you can see most of them sweet and uh man it was fun i shot a new species of something you'll have to watch to find out i was super super uh excited about Anyway, that was a lot of fun. That video will be coming out soon. Uh, in the meantime, if you haven't watched the Meat Buck film, it is titled Texas Public Land Buck, and it's on YouTube. Um, it is the video of Casey's Meat Buck, the infamous, <laughs> the infamous Meat Buck. You got raged. I on know, that, man. Dude. People apparently don't like the idea that like you shoot animals for meat. It's kind of <laughs> really weird. Like we live in such a contrast, and we didn't even plan on talking about this too much, but like. Hunters, I'm going to criticize us, okay? Yeah, okay? Criticize us as hunters. We like to like talk about how, like, oh, we're all in this for the organic meat that we obtain for our families, right? <laughs> and all this stuff. But then when you say, 
that you shot that deer for that purpose. People freak out because yeah. they're like, oh, all deer matter, dude. It's not just about that. It's like, okay. <laughs> deer lives matter. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, we literally participate in an industry that is almost completely funded by big antlers. Yeah. Like, I would say 99.99%. Mm-hmm. There might be like a little bitty smidgen <laughs> of a person who really enjoys watching those and small bucks get shot, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that's what they really like. But otherwise, it's all funded about antlers. <laughs> so when you shoot something not because of the antlers, people get really weirded out about yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I, I like in your interview on this, you talk about how you're like, this isn't the buck that I would have shot on October 3rd. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's, it's true, man. Like, you... It's not because you don't care about meat at that point in the season, but like you value the meat enough that at the end of the season you're willing to mm-hmm. let go of this challenge, these standards that challenge you to obtain the meat. You yeah, I mean? it's 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 <clears throat> you weigh out these things in your mind of like necessities versus like desires, right? Right. right. It was more of a necessity for me to shoot that deer. I still wanted to shoot it. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I was looking at my freezer. Uh, and said, okay, I need this much for us to make it until next deer season or next elk season or whatever it might be. I'm glad you did. Yeah. I've already eaten part of the back strap off that. Good. I still have a whole one in the, fr- in the freezer. <laughs> I didn't even touch, man. I got a, I got a solid third. I'm going to have to get them cut in. I didn't realize, but the, the, uh, this Texas deer are going to have to be cut into halves for my family. You said thirds and I was, I mean, I was, thirds work, uh, on a sure. Midwest deer for me, Yeah, well, for, but also we're my talking, kids are getting bigger too. We're talking horses and ponies at that point, man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, anyway, you, um, you are just managing the herd as far as I'm concerned and <laughs> you're going to be managing the herd on a new property that we've been talking about. We've been alluding Ooh. to lately, um, and you're, you've been doing a lot of work there, but uh, recently you've done some kind of sticky things there. I have. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> We're not talking about Greenbrier either. I've been trying to be real, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so funny. So um, uh, I yep. did something that's really not whitetail related, but way, 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 way down the chain it is. And this is why it's cool. Okay. Okay. So this property that that me and my wife purchased is going to be our homestead. We're going to build there. Uh, We're going to hunt there. Going to raise our kids there. And hopefully uh, be able to, like one of my big goals is to be able to give my kids a great outdoor education at all times. Like that's something I'm super passionate about. Right. So uh, this property is going to be in my dreams. And I'm hoping to make that a reality. Like a really cool outdoor classroom. Okay, it's going to take some cleaning up and some things to do beforehand. This past weekend, we went out to actually push down this old rotten house that was on the place so that we can build our new place. Uh, well, we went to pushing on this place, and all of a sudden, zzz, <laughs> bees went everywhere. And we were like, oh, man, got to watch out for that spot. And then it never clicked to me that I should get those bees because it just so happens I had a bee box I'd purchased to put bees on the property at one point in time. I'm glad you, so, I'm glad, okay, I'm glad you clarified. I was saying you said bee box. No. <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, uh, yeah, so ends up we couldn't get the house pushed down because the tractor wasn't big enough, had to uh, resort to a dozer, which was a whole other story. Um, but uh, they gave me an opportunity to go borrow uh, a bee suit from our friend Slade Daniel, who's on the podcast last week. Yeah. Um, and borrowed his bee suit, went out, smoked the bees by myself. Not like, didn't like <laughs> smoke them, but like I uh, 
you got a little smoker and you pump it up, you yeah. know, and send a little smoke in there. Actually, what that does is it um, uh, simulates a forest fire. That's why you do that. It's not to like put the bees in a hibernation or anything, but when you do that, the bees go into honey collection mode. So they go engorge themselves on honey and they stop worrying about you getting into the hive. And I watched it happen because they were all on the outside of it and I went with this smoke and they went way up inside. Right up to the honeycomb. Yeah. And I just started pulling it out and putting it in my bee uh, box. I got all. So you started pulling the comb out? The comb out. Yeah. While the bees are on it. Uh, If you can. Yeah. And then. weird? No. Do you feel like you're smashing them all up in the honey and stuff? No, not too bad. Yeah, I didn't really smash too much honey, really. Uh, it, it came out pretty easy. I guess maybe sometimes it's more like stuck to the stuff it's on, but it was stuck to sheetrock in this old house, so it came out pretty simple, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but most of the bees kind of all wadded up off the comb because they kept kind of running away from me, and then I just grab them and throw them in the in the box. But uh, never got stung once. Cool. And the only time the bees even tried to sting was when I would grab them to put them in the box. Some bees would sting my gloves. I could see them stinging. But mm-hmm. otherwise, like, I think you could have walked right up there and grabbed a piece of that honeycomb and pulled it out and not get stung by a bee. Just like a I bear. I straight up think you could. Just like a yeah. bear. Yeah. And maybe it was the smoke <laughs> that helped with that, you know? I don't know. But it yeah. was, they were surprisingly docile. It's cool. Like, maybe you I, got, um, maybe you're a bee whisperer. I might be. I got the bee touch. <laughs> but, so, long story short, I now have uh, a bee colony. Did you find the queen? I don't know. That's I never what I, saw I'm like, her. People are always like, you got to get the queen and this and that. Like, yeah. I don't even talk to Slade about it. He talks about the queen all the time. I'm like, is the queen any different than the rest of them? Really? Yeah, like, it's just like the brain. So, like, Well, I mean, but you can't see her brain. Hmm? You said the brain? She's like the brain. So like yeah, the, right. But like, how do you know which one is like? You can't oh, just they look, look different. at them, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you They're, can. I thought they were just like a touch bigger, where you can't really even tell. But there's a million of them in there. Uh, nah, I think you could probably tell just from the videos I've watched. I'm I not a you. bee expert or anything. Yeah, or expert. You might be um, an expert. Though, at some point, <laughs> I might be <laughs> one of these days. But so I think the queen's like one and a half times the size, and she has a real oh. elongated abdomen, and she's going to be lighter color. Oh. So. Um, Anyways, I didn't see her, but I went over today, which is 24 hours after the collection. No bees in the original hive location, and a ton of bees still in my box doing bee stuff, like working on the comb and stuff. So I think she's probably in there. I don't know for sure. I'm not going to jinx it. I don't believe in jinxes, so ain't no thing. (laughs) Uh, But I'm pretty sure all is well. And I think, I don't know this for sure, and if you're a bee person, holler at me. Uh, my boy Slade has been super helpful, but it's always good to get a second, second opinion. Um, I think that if you don't get the queen, it's not the end of the world, but it's so much better if you do. Yeah. I think they can hatch another one or there might be one on the way, you know, or whatever. So princess, like a princess. Yeah. A little, a little princess peach in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's your Mario Kart character, isn't it? No. Yeah. I love (laughs) racing the peach. No, I'm Wario, dude. Evil, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Bowser, I used to do Bowser all the time. Oh, I but, don't like him. Yeah, that was the cool part uh, of my land this week, man. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the bee stuff, cool. like more than I thought I would. And now I've got three quarters of a little bear over here full of honey from my own property. Yeah, that's and cool. It's, like so good. Is it? I might have taste some here. And yeah, say I'm it. gonna let you. I don't really have a medium for it, so you might just have to use a spoon. Squirt it in my mouth, yeah. dude. That's how power, I do it. Powerlifting style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, 
Are you going to rob again this year? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how this works. Um, there's a bunch of honey in the in the box right now that I put in there for him. Are you going to have to buy like all the tools and stuff to do it? No, man. Slate has like a like a crank, like a bucket. You crank this thing and it like squeezes the honey out and. Or like no, it doesn't throw the or doesn't squeeze the honey out, it throws it out like yeah. all on the sides. Oh, of this. it's a centrifuge. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I did it caveman style and just squished the comb in my hands and got that out, and it looked pretty efficient. Like I don't think I lost much. Yeah. So did unless you, did I, you eat any of the comb, I well, I don't like to like chew the wax because it gets all of my teeth real bad. Yeah, I but I put it in there and kind of, it's really strange. You don't know this, but uh. For those of you who may or may not have dabbled into tobacco in your lives, it is a lot like chewing tobacco. Like, you take that comb, squish it around your mouth, and put it over on the side and suck on it, and you get the honey out of it. Huh. I don't really have anything cool and new going on with me. I would it's rather right. uh, Wit probably give us some cool things. He has a lot of cool things to say, yeah, I guarantee yeah. you. All right, let's get him on the phone then. All right, so now on the line, I have Wit Fosberg of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. What's happening, Wit? Not a lot, Tyler. How about you guys? Uh, running around like chickens with their heads cut <laughs> off, man. <laughs> Guarantee you. <laughs> Trying to get this thing ready. You know, it's uh, it's pretty much right after work. And, and uh, you know, we pretty much ran in the door and set this thing up and troubleshot everything. And now we're talking to you <laughs> on on the podcast. So we're happy to be doing that right now. But no, It's great talking to you guys. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't talked since I uh, saw you. Out of our media summit this summer. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, and man, that was an awesome event. I appreciate you having us out for that because I think I caught my biggest trout on that trip. Uh, okay. You know, we went down to Yellowstone. I think uh, most of y'all or most everybody else kind of went down to Madison or something, maybe. Yeah, Madison was slow that day. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we're we're talking today um, about conservation, obviously, but the um, you know conservation a lot of times. Um, when you talk about the issues surrounding it, you see kind of a, a bleak picture that's painted. And I think the intent is, is you know, um, well-meaning. It's to kind of to drive people to stay involved, to get others involved that aren't involved. Um, but sometimes it just kind of makes me feel, or somebody who might be, I guess, working towards these conservation issues, especially a young person. I think you've probably seen, been around the block a time or two and know that these things develop over um, you know, winds develop over years and years sometimes. And so, um, but for me, you know, sometimes it just makes me feel like I'm fighting a losing battle. So, um, I want to kind of just promote, um, the winds that we've had in conservation lately, because I know there's a lot of things going on in North America. And, um, I think hopefully this will be a, a great source of encouragement for people who, who don't know where to start or would like right. to get involved. Um, so, Let's start where the Europeans began changing the landscape in the Northeast. <laughs> What's the big win there lately? Uh, well, let me let me just talk about your general you know thesis sure, to yeah. begin with. And uh, I mean, I mean honestly, these are the good old days. I mean, you know, hunting and fishing and fish and wildlife conservation is in great shape in this country. And uh, you think about where it was, you know, back in Theodore Roosevelt's time, you know, a century ago. You know, white-tailed deer were almost extinct. Black bear, buffalo. You know, there was a time when the duck stamp was passed in the 1930s that there was a real fear that a bunch of the duck species were going to go extinct. And uh, today, you know, we have 
you know, sharpshooters in Rock Creek Park in D.C. because there are so many deer. Uh, we got, you know, elk at, you know, numbers we haven't seen, you know, in ages, um, you know, and even with a lot of the predators in the ecosystem, like, you know, wolves coming back, you know, so we, these are the good old days. And the notion that, you know, it's just gloom and doom out there, which is what we, you know, thrive on is just not true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we've got to make sure that we protect what it is that we've created here. I mean, the whole North American model of conservation, you know, is the best in the world. I mean, we have, you know, a true professional wildlife management system in this country paid for by the folks who use it, the hunters and anglers. We have 640 million acres of federal public lands to go play on. We've got a bunch of state lands and other places to go out and enjoy. And uh, unlike Europe or England or, you know, some places that, you know, this is a sport for the common man. So you can get out. There doesn't matter how much money you make or what your socioeconomic status is that you can get out and you can hunt and you can fish and you can enjoy this amazing bounty that we have because, you know, people is all of us own the game and the fish in this country and not just the landed gentry. And it's what makes America cool. It's what drives the whole outdoor recreation economy. You know, and Roosevelt felt back in his time, this was a way that people could go out and test themselves and get in the backcountry, you know, see nature you know, experience the things that he did that he credited with making him a man. And and we have that, you know, same opportunities today, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so let's just use that as an overall backdrop. But then we get into any individual place, and, yeah, there are threats, but there have been threats all along. And uh, it's because our community has been engaged that we've been able to push a lot of those back. Now, you talk about the Northeast and some, you know, good stories there. And, you know, there are a lot of good stories in the Northeast. I mean— you know, that is, I uh, think about just the landscape there. You know, the forests have really come back everywhere from, you know, the Adirondacks of upstate New York up through, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire. At one point, you know, all those areas have been largely clear cut for the timber industry. And uh, when they created the Adirondack Park in the 1880s, it wasn't because they wanted to, you know, sort of preserve special lands. It was because, you know, all the fires, all the erosion, we're threatening the New York City and the Albany water supply systems. And so we have, you know, much healthier you know, forests today than we did a long time ago. Yeah, we have a lot of threats with, you know, blights and invasive species like the emerald ash borer. But still, we've got some really nice intact, you know, forest system that provide you know, great hunting up there. So that's one thing. And uh, you think about, you know, one of the issues that we have to deal with a lot here in terms of federal policy is chronic wasting disease which really threatens deer hunting around the country. But the Northeast is one place that's really gotten it right. You know, it's not in, you know, Maine, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire. It was in New York State, but they found it and they addressed it aggressively and they haven't found it back again. So it really provides a lesson that if you can, you know, identify the disease out there, you know, and whack some deer when it comes in, you can really keep it under control or in New York's case, actually get rid of it altogether. Yeah. So there's some really good stuff happening there that I think other states in the country could really get a lesson from. Mm-hmm. So um, that, New York's the only state that's actually gotten rid of it once it, they found it, right? Yeah, and they were, they were fortunate. It had a very small <clears throat> outbreak in really one place, and uh, it was a captive facility. They you know killed the deer. They killed a bunch of other deer around there and uh, you know, quarantined basically that area and then did a bunch of testing, and it's just never come back. So, you know, they were lucky they got that first deer mm-hmm. um, that appears to be, you know, sort of a very isolated case. 
Mm-hmm. But it also sort of argues to the point that you could take it seriously and be aggressive when you find it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They would, uh, they'd have to knock out about half of our state if they uh, quarantined the areas around fenced uh, down here in Texas. <laughs> around fenced oh, yeah. Operations. No, I know. I mean, and that's, you're not just Texas. I mean, Wisconsin, you know, has had a big explosion in Pennsylvania lately. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but, you know, look at a state like Illinois, which, you know, sort of got it too, but then was pretty aggressive in dealing with it. And it stayed below 1% of the, you know, overall deer, you know, levels. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you if you do treat aggressively and you follow the science and you don't let the naysayers get in your way, then you can, you can take care of it. You may never get rid of it like New York did because that was a very isolated case. Mm-hmm. But you can keep it at a you know way background level where it really doesn't have any implications to the overall population or to people hunting them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, another positive guy that we know and was there this summer, Brian Murphy from the Quality Deer Management Association, he always likes to say that I think it's 97% of counties in the U.S. don't have CWD. And all right. the while it is something to be aware of, it's not like it's – the apocalypse of deer at least yet right mm-hmm. yeah i mean it can be if we're complacent about it mm-hmm. right right and if it gets everywhere i mean you know, a place like wisconsin is in for a world of hurt for a long time yes. because you know it just did not address it the way it should have and it's over 50 percent prevalence in much of those counties mm-hmm. and uh they, a lot of the states like even minnesota now is taking it really seriously because they don't want to be like wisconsin Mm-hmm. So they're you know really clamping down on the captive deer farms. You know they're being very aggressive about you know what comes in and out of that state. And honestly, it's what we all need to be thinking about. Even us hunters. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us blame the captive deer industry for moving around deer, and there clearly is a lot of blame there. But hey, if you and I go to hunt in Wisconsin and throw a deer in the back of our truck and drive home, you know we're culpable too. Sure. So we've just got to you know, as a hunting community recognize this is the new normal we can't do things necessarily the way we've always done it before mm-hmm. yeah for sure so if we were to head head south a touch the mid-atlantic is is a place that i would really like to visit sometime that i'm not actually playing football or doing something where i can actually <laughs> you know go out and, and and visit because it just seems like this kind of isolated uh kind of under the radar area that's also really diverse what's going on in that area right now yeah you I mean it's it's definitely worth coming up here and checking it out i mean dc is in the mid-atlantic area and it is an amazing you know, i mean i live right in you know dc and i can get out and you know be fishing in five minutes from my house mm-hmm. and uh you know get out and you know deer hunt 45 minutes outside of town you know some of the best waterfowl hunting in the country is out on the chesapeake bay and the eastern shore and the bay itself is really amazing. I mean, we have this big, shallow estuary, which is the Chesapeake Bay, that has several big rivers that flow into it, including the Susquehanna, the Potomac. And it has been you know, sort of the lifebread of this region for a long time. And it's where all the, you know, largely most of the striped bass spawn, um, you know, and it's you know, just an incredible you know, resource. Now, it got seriously trashed in about the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, overharvest, pollution coming from, you know, Pennsylvania, upstate New York, you know, Maryland, Virginia, all the other states that, you know, around the Bay. But really that tide has turned and we started to see, you know, better and better numbers coming out of the Bay in terms of water quality, but also wildlife species, you know, crabs, oysters, striped bass. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we don't want to do is, you know, sort of get complacent again and go back to where we were 50 years ago when it was really a dying body of water. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some things like, you know, 
there's a weird little fish called the Menhaden. <laughs> I don't know and, what one uh, looks like still. I, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's also called Bunker mm-hmm. up in you know northeast. It's called Pogi in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And basically, the only thing it's good for is everything else eating it. Yes. <laughs> and so it is truly the base of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in the you know, early you know 1900s, there were what were known as reduction you know fisheries up and down the east coast. And these, you know, they would send boats out. They scoop up the and Hayden and you know Perth Sains and grind them up for oil, for fish food, for fertilizer, for you know, you know pet food, you know whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then finally, they figured out that that was not sustainable. So every state in the East Coast, except for Virginia, banned you know basically what they call reduction fishing, scooping them up and grinding them into something else. But Virginia still has one plant called Omega Protein in Reedville, Virginia, that basically kills 80% of the overall harvest of Manhattan on the East Coast. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they have spotter planes and big ships that go out there. And it is, you know, by volume, the second largest fishery in the United States behind Alaskan Pollock. Mm. And if you like get a you know, fillet of fish or something, that may well be an Alaskan Pollock. Mm-hmm. Right. So and now these fish have been purchased by a Canadian company called Cook Industries. And Cook bought them because now they're grinding up these fish and sending them to Canada to feed pen-raised Atlantic salmon, which is also a totally unsustainable fishery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have you know like one unsustainable fishery sustaining another unsustainable fishery. <laughs> and uh, we finally have a chance now to change the way that whole fishery is managed. In 2020, the governing body of all the states on the East Coast called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is set to move from a single species model, which is basically how many menhaden can you catch before you collapse stock, to how many menhaden can you catch while still taking into the needs of the broader ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So what do the striped bass need? What do the weak fish need? Bluefish, the bald eagles, the whales that eat these. They are also filter feeders. So a lot of them breed or spawn in the Chesapeake Bay. So what they do is they swim around and basically filter the water. So there's a direct implication on water quality. Mm-hmm. The more you have, the better you're going to do. But even with today's harvest, they estimate that about it's reduced the striped bass population on the East Coast by about 30%. Mm-hmm. Now, that is really significant because striped bass is by far the number one recreational species in this country mm-hmm. in terms of economic impact. So 2020, we may have that change. We may go to a system that actually recognizes the ecological value of these fish and not just how many we can kill before we collapse them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you just said something really big, and I want to make sure I understand what you said. You said that striped bass are the most economical, or let me rephrase this, rephrase this. they have the most economic impact as a recreational fishery of Correct. anything out there. So Anything out there. We're not saying so, not saying just fish, but but animals too. So more than whitetail. Oh, no, no, we're just saying fish. So okay. Of all the recreational fish. Stocks, but more than largemouth bass. bass. catfish, all Oh, that. no, saltwater. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Saltwater. Okay. Okay. But yeah, still, yeah, yeah. okay. okay. I'm, I'm glad you guys are there to correct me. So. <laughs> no, no. I get I just, dabbling, and I forget a few, a few, few, few key qualifiers. <laughs> no, so, I didn't, no, I didn't mean to take it a task. Saltwater. Saltwater recreational fish. Gotcha. So striped bass is bigger than you know, salmon on the West Coast, just wow. bigger than redfish in the Gulf. Yeah. It is a huge industry. Still, that's very huge. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's oh yeah. That's incredible. That's so yep. cool. And, cool. and um 
it's so strange to see that contrast of menhaden because in the Texas Gulf, we actually kind of have an issue with too many sometimes. And it's uh, because of fertilizers, from what I understand, you know, and runoff in a different situation there, which we might get into some of that later. But so up there, the menhaden are actually a key component to cleaning the bay. Cleaning the bay. Yeah. Right. So they clean the bay, and they basically provide that base for everything else to eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So where's the? Where would you consider the Mid Atlantic stopping on the north and south end? Oh, I'd say it's New Jersey down through North Carolina. Gotcha. Yeah, that's. I was kind of thinking. <laughs> I was just making sure to clarify that. Cool. So, if we keep driving south here uh, on our road trip, we get to the Gulf states, which. We happen to be one of those here in Texas, but maybe uh-huh. let's start kind of over in Florida on the East Coast, and because um, I know there's a huge and very important ecology over there. Yeah, I mean, and actually, that's one of the uh, that has been a scary story in recent years. I mean, you probably saw all the stories about the you know the red tide and the algal mm-hmm. blooms off the east and the west coast, and you know that was a huge problem because you know that impacted you know not only just the you know fishing industries on both coasts, which it did, but even if you were, uh, you know, the rental industry, who wants to go and rent a condo on the beach if it's, you know, stinking with, you know, red tide and dead fish and you can't, <laughs> right. you know, it hurts your lungs to breathe it. So, and that that is really a direct result of the way they manage water in the state of Florida. So, historically, you know, the central Florida, the Lake, Lake Okeechobee area, you know, when that would, you know, the water from there, you know, drains south through the Everglades and then down into Florida Bay and east and west. And, uh, you know, th- going through that acted as a giant, basically, you know, sponge that, you know, not only reduced flood flows, but cleaned that water as it went through. Now, in our wisdom, Corps of Engineers decided years ago that they were going to divert all those flows and send them east and west <laughs> instead of south. Mm-hmm. So now there is not that filtering capacity that we used to have. And instead, that water gets pumped out as fast as it can be. You know, to the east and the west, which causes these, you know, huge algal blooms. Mm-hmm. And so finally, as a way to really restore the Everglades, you know, the state of Florida basically committed to $1.2 billion to build a whole new reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee that would catch that water, filter it, and then send it south instead of east and west and really restoring those original flows to the Everglades. Mm-hmm. And then Congress in December passed something called the Water Resources Development Act, which basically committed, you know, 200 million a year to do the same thing in federal funds to match those state funds. So, all of a sudden now we are on the fast track to Everglades restoration. Cool. Now, wow. fast track is a relative term. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> probably going to take a decade to get this built and to get that water flowing south. But we're further along there than we have been for, you know, my lifetime certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, I understand that. Uh, there's a lot of politics involved with the Everglades situation, and in particular, we're talking about big sugar, right? And that, that has a big impact on it. So ha- what are the difficulties in, like, how is that overcome when you start – you can't just throw money at things, right? So, like, how, how do you mitigate the, the situation with big sugar and then also with those landowners and stuff who live south of Lake Okeechobee? Yeah, so a lot of the land that will become this new reservoir is being purchased from big sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've you know, sort of squawked over time because they keep trying to drive up the price of what they get paid for, you know, acquisition of this area. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to get, you know, they're going to get their money one way or another. Um, so I think the politics have gotten a little bit easier in the state in recent years when they realize they have to do something. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if Big Sugar doesn't like it, they're going to yeah. get compensated. 
And, uh, you know, that is in the taxpayer's interest to even you know, buy them out so that, you know, basically the Everglades, you know, east and west coast fisheries, everything else can get mm-hmm. restored. Yes. Um, so I think the politics are a lot better now than they have been. But you're absolutely right. The reason we're still talking about this when we have been for 30 years is because of that sort of political politics of, you know, do nothing versus, you know, do everything. Mm-hmm. And now we finally got in this compromise. And, uh, you know, Rick Scott, when he was governor of Florida, deserves credit because he helped push this through. You know, a guy named Joe Negron, who was the Senate leader and the assembly down there, was really a driving force behind it. But then also, you know, not only just the Florida delegation in Congress, but really everybody else that recognized that, you know, the Everglades are a national resource. They're not just a Florida resource. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, came to the table and gave the money that's going to be needed to fix that up. Cool. So what about the rest of the Gulf? What what kind of winds are we looking at in the in the remainder of the Gulf throughout those well, states? Well, I mean, actually, you know, as much as the damage that the Deepwater Horizon, you know, spill did, you know, a ton of money came into conservation after that, you know, close to $20 billion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've been really active. Our guy in Louisiana has been helping shepherd a bunch of projects down there to – uh, restore barrier islands, to, you know, recreate marshes, to, you know, reconnect the sediment flows that come down the Mississippi. I mean, we have a huge problem in you know, that Louisiana area because, you know, we canalize that river and put up big dikes all along the way. And so in the old days, when it would flood, it would flood naturally out over a broad area, and that sediment would build land or keep land up there. When we diked it and changed that sediment flow, what we did was all of a sudden, there was nothing to replenish all those wetlands. So they began to sink. And Louisiana loses, I can't remember, a staggering amount of land you know, every day mm-hmm. through just subsidence. So finally, now we have a process, really because of the Deepwater Horizon you know, penalty monies, that you know, is you know, projects going on all the way from Texas over to Florida to basically rebuild that coastal ecosystem. And that's going to be good for fish and wildlife, but it's also good for you know, the communities that live along there. Because when you have barrier islands, when you have wetlands, it protects those communities from the storm surges, from the hurricanes that come along. I'm going to be going down, uh, actually, this weekend to shoot some geese down in your state of Texas. Ooh, conservation so, season. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> so I'm going down to something called the Sabine Ranch, which is over near Beaumont. Yep. And uh, it joins the McFadden National Wildlife Refuge. Mm-hmm. This is a really cool project that the Conservation Fund has done. They have purchased an old ranch there and helped do some restoration work on it. But it's 12,500 acres is going to be donated to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and that refuge, which is going to really protect the largest freshwater marsh in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that money to do that acquisition was paid for with some of these BP funds. Wow. And, you know, they saw it after they, you know, Harvey which dumped like 50 inches of rain down there in the refuge, you know, a week later, you know, that refuge did exactly what it's supposed to do, which is basically become a big filter and a sponge and protect those flows. And what it did was capture all that water, let it soak in, and uh, nature worked the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so those types of projects, not only acquisitions, but also restorations of, you know, the flow sediments or the flow regimes that produce the sediments, you know, the barrier islands, oyster reefs, artificial reefs, those are going on all over the place. And uh, that is really good for fish and wildlife, and it's good for that whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. I was um, much younger um, when this happened, I guess, and 
I'm asking you to try to, because we all love conservation here, but uh, be as unbiased as possible. How fair was the BP deal to BP? Oh, I think it was pretty fair. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the way it's supposed to work. I mean, you 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 do something that is not only negligent but borderline criminal. Mm-hmm. You deserve to pay a penalty for it. Yeah. I mean, if it was a, a slap in the wrist, I mean, what would prevent the next company from short-circuiting or shortcutting you know, all of its things it's doing? Sure, yeah. So, and and also, I mean, you're, you're forgetting the impacts to tourism, to the fisheries, mm-hmm. you know, not only you know, recreational, but also commercial. And it's really hard to quantify a lot of those damages. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, BP is not going out of business because of this. They make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, as I think it sent a very important signal to the rest of industry that you you cut corners like that, you're going to pay the price if something goes wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess I just didn't know the details of it because at that point in my life, I was kind of just ignorant to what, what, what actually happened also, in that deal. Yeah, we also don't know what the long-term impacts are. You know, yeah, what sure. are the impacts of, like, those sediment, the oil and stuff on the pelagic fish, the tuna? You know, we really don't have a really good handle on that still because those fish are so long-lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you know, it's going to take a while really to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. And right. then you throw tarpon migrations and stuff like that in there. You know, it's just it might be twenty or thirty years before we see the huge impact that that, that had, and hopefully that doesn't happen, but it could. Right? Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but anyway, I'm just what I'm just pleased at is the money that they you know paid up didn't just go to the federal treasury. Right. To, you know, be spent on God knows what. Mm-hmm. It is actually being returned to fixing up those places where oil and gas has had a big impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, from the, you know, diversions to, you know, everything else we've seen. I mean, listen, I drive a car, you know, I heat my house, so I appreciate that they're there. But at the same time, you can't deny that they had an impact on the ecosystem of that Gulf. And when something like this happens, you know, they, I'm glad to see that money is going back in to fix that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, uh, yeah, it's nice to not see it just disappear into a party fund for politicians or something. <laughs> yeah. You know? so, yeah, yeah, um, as much fun as that would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, it, okay, so leaving the Gulf states um, and heading kind of north, well, you, you might end up in the Midwest. And I know uh, people like to lump it into uh, the Midwest and in the upper Midwest, or they like to, you know, delegate that. But um, maybe we'll lump it all together, even though Missouri may be a lot different from Wisconsin or Ohio or something like that. But, um, you know, what are, what's the, what, what are the progress that we're seeing in the Midwest as a whole? Kind of? Well, I think that, you know, what the area you're talking about is really sort of the breadbasket of the country. Mm-hmm. And that is agriculture country. It is, you know, as for our corn, soybeans, you know, a lot of the wheat, you know, comes from, you know, that general part of the world. Um, and uh, so I, you can't talk about that area and talk about conservation without talking about the farm bill. Sure. And so in December, December, January, uh, December, November, I can't remember the exact date, we finally passed a new farm bill. And the farm bill works as a far, five-year bill. So you make a basically a five-year commitment of what you're going to do. And you know, a few years before this farm bill was coming up, you know, we pulled the conservation community together and really you know, basically sat them in a room for a few days to come up with what our collective priorities are going to be. Because in the past, you know, it's been very easy to get our community to sort of break apart like a covey of quail. <laughs> you know, when somebody dangles a little like Benny for your program you really like, you know, maybe you know, a CRP program that the pheasant guys love or a duck water wetlands program mm-hmm. the duck guys love or, you know, a you know, water quality thing that the fish guys love. And so this time we basically made a commitment that, you know, we were going to stick together and we're going to put forward recommendations that float 
everybody's boat. And we're not going to stray from those when the pressure gets on. And and I think we were pretty successful in that. And I think that the new farm bill that we got in December really is a testament to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got $5 billion for conservation, which is the same as the last farm bill, which is good. And, real, real, uh, quick, but, real quick, uh-huh. um, when you say we, you're talking about the different conservation orgs underneath the TRCP umbrella. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And okay. Uh, the way, I mean, just so your listeners understand how we operate, we are a coalition of basically fit, right now 58 different organizations. And uh, we have a you know, basically an agriculture and wildlife working group, which is the folks that work on the farm bill that includes almost 30 different groups. So that's Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Delta Waterfowl, Mule Deer Foundation, Whitetails Unlimited, you know, QDMA, yeah, when I just rattle off all the list mm-hmm. of the various you know, species groups that have something to gain from conservation on private lands. And, you know, as much as we like to talk about public lands, you know, 70% of this country is in private lands. And about half of that is enrolled in some sort of conservation program. So these are huge benefits to, you know, in like Texas, you know, those areas you're talking about in the Midwest – yeah, there's not a lot of public land in those states. Mm-hmm. So you really need to incentivize the private landowners to do what's right for conservation. And they'll do it. Majority of them are really good stewards. Um, but it's it can be pretty hand-to-mouth running a farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you need to cobble together all the different you know, programs you can get to stay above water sometimes. So yeah, we were really pleased the way this farm bill came out. I mean, the Conservation Reserve Program which if you're a pheasant hunter, you know all about, you know, got expanded from 24 million acres to 27 million, right. which is a good expansion. Mm-hmm. There is a... Because it has been easy. in decline, correct, the last several Oh, yeah. Times. No, that's the first time it's had an increase since 1996. That's, that's awesome. So, I mean, there's a little less money that goes with it. So, from a budgetary standpoint, it came out kind of flat. Mm-hmm. So, it's not as great as it sounds, but still it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a big easement program called the Agricultural Agriculture Conservation Easement Program, and that saw an increase of $200 million a year. Ooh. So, And that is for much longer-term easements that protect things like wetlands, hmm. um, which is you know, obviously if you're a waterfowl hunter or you care about water quality, you know that is a really significant program. A, little, a lot of people don't know it, but the Farm Bill also pays landowners to open up their land to public hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. It's a program known as the Voluntary Public Access Habitat Improvement Program, VPA HIP. And uh, they're going to add an extra $10 million into that. And the way that is spent is that's about a $50 million program now. So the way that's spent is actually it's competitive grants to states. And then the state gets a block of, say, a couple million dollars. Then they go out and negotiate easements with private landowners. And so the, the private landowner gets a payment, and in return, he gets he opens up that land to public hunting and fishing and public access. And uh, he gets the, the state assumes the liability. So if somebody falls in a ditch and breaks their leg, you know, that private landowner is not you know, liable for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Farm Bill has a ton of different benefits from ecological to just even hunting and fishing and socioeconomic. So we were really pleased when we got that. And that impacts every state throughout that, you know, that Midwest from mm-hmm. – Michigan, all the way down through Arkansas, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, I guess if you were to to kind of head west from there, you're getting into more plain states. Um, 
Are we looking at similar winds there, or what's is there anything different? Or yeah, well, certainly the you know, the farm bill had a big impact on a lot of those plain states. I mean, you may go from you know, sort of row agriculture, which is what we see in a lot of the you know, Illinois and Iowa, to more cattle grazing country. But there are certainly benefits there in the farm bill for those areas. And uh, the other thing I would talk about in terms of a lot of those plain states, especially more of the western plains, like you know, eastern Montana, eastern Wyoming. You know that's sage grouse country, mm-hmm. and if you're a you know bird hunter, you know sage grouse is probably one of those species you actually haven't hunted for, but it's probably on your bucket list. Mm-hmm. It's big and it's slow, and something even I can probably hit, <laughs> <laughs> and it eats pretty well. Um, and it is, but it's mostly really known for these sort of weird mating dances it has. And your your listeners can go on to you know just go on to YouTube and Google National Geographic the sage sagebrush sea, and there's a great. You know, sort of a one-hour documentary on sage grouse and the sage ecosystem. That's cool. And this was a species that was uh, declining rapidly. The historians say there are probably somewhere around 16 million sage grouse in that, you know, sort of the Rocky Mountain Plains area. And it's really over 11 states. Uh, historically, today, we're probably at about a half million. So there was a real threat that this bird was going to get listed under the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. So about a decade ago, a variety of different interests, including the federal government, but ranching groups, environmentalists, sportsmen, all got together and said, what can we do basically to keep this bird from getting listed? Because if something that's listed in the Endangered Species Act, you know, you sort of move from the realm of voluntary contra- conservation to the government telling you you have to do it, which makes it way harder. Mm-hmm. So That's for yeah, agriculture was, and everybody, right? That's yeah, not, exactly, that doesn't just yeah. affect... Yeah, uh, hunters or fishermen. Yeah, and I, I mean, think about sage grouse too. I mean, this is a species that grew up in areas that don't have trees. Mm-hmm. So anytime it sees something, it gets away from it because that's where a big raptor would sit, and that's really its you know, main natural predator. Mm-hmm. So if it sees, you know, power lines, if it sees an oil derrick, if it sees a wind turbine, it's going to vacate that area, and that is the major reason we were seeing this sort of broad decline in the species. Also, an area gets you know overgrazed, then there's really nothing, no place for it to hide, and nothing for the birds to eat. So you had a whole bunch of different factors coming together. So oil and gas was part of these agreements. And uh, in 2015, everyone came together, and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and the, at that time the Obama administration, announced that you know agreement had come, and they were not going to list the species. And uh, that had huge implications, and it's over you know, 70 million acres over 11 states. And uh, the Trump guys came in. There was a lot of fear they were going to completely blow that up. But instead, they actually took a much more deliberate process. Yeah, they opened up all the plans in these states, but they asked for the changes that the governors might like to see. And governors made small tweaks, but they basically kept the plans as they had been. Mm-hmm. So what could have been a real disaster and uh, a real sort of a, a sense that, you know, gosh, we'd worked all these years to put together this voluntary plan. Now it's getting blown up. Yeah, that really didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I think actually, and we talk about the sage grouse, which is a cool bird, mm-hmm. but that same ecosystem, you know, that's critical habitat for mule deer, for pronghorn, and for basically 350 other species that, you know, live out there. Mm-hmm. So there was a real fear that, that if, you know, as the sage grouse goes, so go all those other animals. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, you know, the mule deer numbers out west are, you know, declining in a trend the wrong direction, too. So we hope that this is going to stabilize that, too. Yeah, yeah. sure. And I, I guess 
using a sage grouse as an indicator species is a great idea, but it's also difficult because, I mean, they're ground nesting birds, so they're going to have varying population levels annually, right? So it's much more about the trends than it is more about the like current now what's going on with sage grouse, right? So you yeah, really have a, to look a, back historically. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great comment because you can have a few years of drought and the numbers crash, mm-hmm. and that's natural. That's mm-hmm. you know that's always happened. Then you get a few really good you know wet years and you get a lot of vegetation and you know, sage grouse numbers you know, explode again. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see a lot of variation in the populations regardless. But you're absolutely right; it's those long term trends that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to we don't have to go on like this big pump fest necessarily, but I would like to give <laughs> props to the TRCP because. Uh, something you mentioned earlier, um, this, uh, you guys are really great, in my opinion, at um, not fear-mongering too much and just allowing um, the politicians to, you know, like, here's, we're presenting the information to you, y'all make, you know, make a good decision, do what you know is right, you know, kind of thing, instead of kind of, uh, you know, thinking that the world's going to end one day and then the next day, oh, well, everything's fine. So I, I would definitely give kudos to you guys for, for being that kind of an organization. Well, I appreciate that. And we, we, we try to do that. I mean, listen, I get, you know, I get pissed off. I call people, <laughs> you know, I call them out for doing bad things. And honestly, we ought to be doing that. But you ought to just make sure you're, the science is behind you. Right. Make sure you don't make it personal. Mm-hmm. You know, just because somebody has made a bad policy choice doesn't mean they're a bad person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, remember that the pendulum swings back and forth. You can't align yourself with one party here because, you know, you know, Republicans are in charge one day. Democrats will be in charge another day. These issues, you know, conservation, hunting and fishing have always been issues that bring us together. They shouldn't be issues that divide us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look back at you know, Richard Nixon's time and Nixon was not. You know, he's probably he'd probably never been outside in a national park, <laughs> but he figured. But he understood that in a time of Watergate, the Vietnam War, race riots, that this was something that could bring the country together. So that's when the Clean Water Act was passed. That when it was EPA was created. Mm-hmm. All happened under Nixon because that was something that transcended politics. And I think the issues today are the same. I mean, we had yesterday, you know, a huge victory in the Senate. A big public lands package passed, uh, permanently reauthorized the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It had a provision in there that affirmed that all public lands are open for hunting and fishing unless they're specifically closed through a public process. So this had huge wins for everybody. This thing basically passed, I think the final margin was... Yeah, 92 to 8. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one and, of the uh, fine senator from Texas was one of the nays, so that was cool. <laughs> well, well, I wasn't going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has never been a huge fan of conservation. No, he right? hasn't. <laughs> he has not. But we're not going to name names. Here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But anyway, no, but this is another example that you know, we don't have to be shrill. We don't have to say that, you know, that the sky is falling on this stuff because mm. you know, we have you know basically you – know, Right is on our side. I mean, this is good for everybody. That's it doesn't right. matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. Yes. Right. Sure. That's awesome. So uh, could you give a quick rundown for those who may not know what the LWCF does? Sure. So Land and Water Conservation Fund was created in the 1960s. In that time, there was a big debate going on about whether to open up the outer continental shelf um, of the U.S. to oil and gas development. And they finally came up with a compromise that, yes, they would open it up. But in return, the oil and gas industry would pay $900 million every year 
1965, that was a lot of money, into a special fund that would pay for conservation. It would pay for land acquisitions. It would pay for city parks. Um, so a lot of the you know really important land conservation projects we've talked about and we've seen in this country, and it may be, it may be a you know a great hunting and fishing area. It may also be the Manassas battlefield outside of you know D.C. Those were protected under Land and Water Conservation Fund. Now, the problem is initially it was I think a 50-year authorization, which is a long time for Congress. Mm-hmm. That came three years ago. Congress gave a three-year extension to that. That ran out in September. And so there was real concern that we needed to get this, you know, reauthorized, and uh, and we need basically it shouldn't ever expire. The money keeps going into the federal government, so it ought to keep coming out for these good things. Mm-hmm. And so, in as part of this big public lands bill, we finally got that permanent reauthorization. Mm-hmm. And now that goes to the House, and the House has got to vote on it. We think that's going to pass easily, and then go to the president for signature, and we think that's he's going to sign that. So at the end of the day, we'll at least have a permanently reauthorized land of water conservation fund. Mm-hmm. Now, the p- other problem with this is that $900 million that the oil and gas industry pays into this fund only one time in the last 50 years or 54 years now has Congress actually given all that money back out for conservation. It raises that fund and pays for deficit reduction for you know God knows what, those mm-hmm. big parties we were talking about. <laughs> so... Or now the big fight is going to be, since oil and gas industry is paying into this fund already, why is it the Congress gets to raid it and spend it for other things? Let's take it off budget. Money comes in. Let's get a spend out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but yeah, that's going to that's going to continue to be a fight because Congress likes to raid it for other projects. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Yeah. Do you feel like there's enough? Um hands reaching out to get the conservation funding, or is it a situation where that money sits there for just long enough for somebody else to say, hey, we're going to take that instead? Well, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is how this whole bill was written in the first place. It mm-hmm. should have been taken off budget from day one. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of true trust funds that were created where the money gets collected and goes into a true trust fund that gets spent out for the purpose you know, that it was intended for. I mean, you look at things like the Pittman-Robertson tax you know, which is if you buy a gun or ammo, you know, that goes into a federal account that then goes out to the states to pay for conservation. Mm-hmm. Fishing side, it was the, uh, you know, Dingle Johnson, then called the Wallet Bro program. Now, those were true trust funds. That money was collected, then goes back out to the states. LWCF was not set up that way, so it gave Congress the ability to rate it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're naive to think that, you know, Congress is ever going to change its ways unless they're told they can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. so anyway, I mean, we've been getting about $400 million a year over the past decade or so, which is still a lot of money for good mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. But there is a huge backlog of really deserving projects out there that can't get funded because, you know, Congress doesn't appropriate all the money it could. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So the funny thing about politics is uh, words never really mean what they're supposed to mean. In this sense, is permanent really permanent? Yeah, unless they unauthorize at some point. I mean, mm-hmm. you can go back in and eliminate the program if Congress wanted to do that. I think that would be – I can't imagine them doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, it, that actually means permanent. Good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, once the settlers made it through the Great Plains, they came to this huge wall of mountains called the Rockies. And it stretches from, I guess, New Mexico all the way up into northern Canada, I guess, right? Yeah. And so, yep. Uh, it's a very large area. I'm sure there's some conservation winds that have happened in the Rockies. 
lately. Oh, yes, my friend. So, <laughs> and, and also, if you're a big game hunter, and that's sort of Shangri-La. You know, oh, that's yes. where you go out to chase your elk, your mule deer, you know, all of your sheep, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is you're into, the animals that I never see back here. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, so that's, it's just super cool country, and just an am- amazing part of that is public lands. And uh, so I mean, that is really, you know, the bounty that our forefathers have left for us. Now, we've done a lot to screw that up. And we've, you know, developed a bunch of areas really with short-sightedly not thinking about the fact that, for example, these animals have to migrate. Mm-hmm. You know, they hang out up in the high country in the summertime, you know, grazing and eating whatever they eat. And then come snows, they move down, and they have to migrate someplace where they can, you know, winter, you know, survive the winters. And uh, so National Geographic... And others have been doing a ton of research on this, and there's some just super cool videos about this. But a lot of the focus has really been on, you know, recently on uh, this sort of that Wyoming area, that south of Yellowstone, going down toward Pinedale and mule deer migration. Mm-hmm. And they've discovered that mule deer will travel up to 200 miles every year during this migration. It's crazy. And a lot of the places they go, you know, they need, they need a few things. I mean, they need stopover points where there's really good habitat. They can eat and gain their strength and keep moving. They need to be able to get through little pinch points, which may be, you know, a quarter mile wide that the entire herd has to move through. And then they have to cross a variety of highways and fences. And so, you know, now there's a real process. I'm going to give the Trump administration a little credit here because, you know, they put that for the secretary order you know, last year, you know, directing all the agencies to identify, you know, these migration corridors and do what they need to do to protect them. And so what they did was put a call out to all the Western states and said, tell us your three to five most important wildlife corridors, and we'll work with you to conserve those. So the states have identified those. In some states, like Wyoming's got pretty darn good data on this, other states have almost none, so it's kind of like guesswork. Mm-hmm. So there's part of research was needed, too, and they've kicked in a little money for research on this. And so now I think we have a real opportunity to conserve those areas. Because you know, if you're in the oil and gas industry, you can plop a derrick right down in the middle of a migration corridor, or with a little forethought, you can move a couple miles off it and drill diagonally underneath it. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it may add a few more dollars to your, your cost of operating. But it's going to protect that you know, migration corridor. Mm-hmm. And you know, so now there's really some new attention on just doing it right and identifying these key areas. There are some areas out there that honestly have, don't have a ton of ecological value. I mean, yeah, I'm sure my brethren will kill me for comment like that. <laughs> but they're, they're, perfect, they're perfectly fine places to put you know, oil fields or solar arrays <laughs> yeah. or wind farms. Um, but other places are incredibly important ecologically, mm-hmm. and really we're just figuring out that data to tell us where those areas are and how we can conserve them. Mm-hmm. Now, now to give a little bit of you know criticism of the Trump administration, they got these areas from you know the states, and uh, instead of saying okay, we're not going to do any leasing in those areas, they just kept on leasing. Mm-hmm. Now their response is well, if the state wants us to withdraw a lease in the corridor, they will do that. But that's throwing the onus back on the state to ask for something so that the state now gets the ire of the oil and gas industry. And, uh, you know, it just seems like kind of a cop out there. But yeah. the overall intentions of the program are good, and we're going to try to make it you know, work over time. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. something Joel's been working on a lot, I guess. Yeah, Joel Webster is our, runs our Western Public Lands Program out of Missoula. 
and he's been really involved with that whole program. We might have to get him fact, on sometime to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, you ought to, because he's way more knowledgeable about it than I am. In <laughs> fact, it was a program that we you know, tried to get the Obama administration to put in place. Mm-hmm. And they were nervous about it because they just thought that industry, grazing community, you know, others were going to just object. Mm-hmm. So they were going to put some really mamby-pamby language in the handbook just saying – you know, look out for these things. Yeah. Actually, the secretary order that Zinke did was far stronger than that. Mm-hmm. And so we give them credit for that. But now there just has to be some teeth in the implementation. Sure. Yeah, sure. Is there any uh, incentive set up in place for, for say, like grazers or uh, oil companies or something to actually uh, have practical practices that are, that are that, you know, help? This ecologically, like we well ago, you said it would cost a little bit more to diagonally drill. Is uh-huh. there any funding coming in anywhere to actually incentivize them to do such things? Not so much with the oil and gas industry. I think the thought is you know, they make so much money yeah. anyway that they can afford you know a little bit extra costs, mm-hmm. especially if it sort of you know reduces the risk that you know groups out there go in and file suit or protests against it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the legal costs alone. I suspect they make they probably make money long term by doing it right in the first place and avoiding these conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the private land side, there are some programs. Certainly in the farm bill, you know, there was a whole program about working lands for wildlife, and there are incentives and grants that go to private landowners to do the right thing for wildlife. And that may be like redesigning fencing mm-hmm. to make it easier for animals to move through. Mm-hmm. And they've been doing that for sage grouse, but they also can do that for big game. You know, we hosted a you know, workshop down in Salt Lake City a couple of weeks ago with the fish and game departments of all the states um, and uh, departments of transportation for all the states because you know we have a highway bill coming up in the next couple of years, and we need to make, be thinking about you know, wildlife crossings because if you, you can either sort of let these animals you know, play frogger going across the road <laughs> you know, or you can put in an underpass or an overpass Mm-hmm. And allow these animals to move across. And I think long term, yeah, it costs a little bit of money, but you're going to save a ton of money if you're the insurance company. Right. On cars getting hit, you're not going to have people killed by colliding with a moose or an elk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think overall, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. yeah. We like sensible things. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, you know, if you were to follow the Rockies all the way down to New Mexico, you start getting to a different, different world in the Southwest. And we have. What you what we consider this part of the Southwest in our state here in Texas as well, um, but I know there it's arid country and there are issues around water. I'm sure. Oh, there are, and a lot of it involves the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually had a big breakthrough in that this past year too, when really? all the states along the Colorado River finally agreed to a drought contingency plan, and which means that basically that has to be authorized by Congress. But we think there's going to be relatively small opposition to that here. But it essentially lays out the fact that, you know, as water's, you know, flows decrease, you know, how that cut is divided up, you know, among the various states. And it was it's your first step for basically, you know, starting, the, starting to, you know, take less water out of that river. Or it's already over-appropriated. You've seen the pictures of Lake Mead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so but this finally becomes a step that everybody's on the same page about how we can sort of reduce consumption here which is critically important for all a bunch of those trout rivers that are along here that form the tributaries of the Colorado. Yes. And uh, in places like Wyoming and Colorado, I mean, you've got some of the best trout fishing in the world out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there's a huge pressure to you know, divert more and more water as you know, communities like Denver and Boulder 
you know, at Phoenix, you know, as they grow and grow, uh, they have, everyone has their irrigated lawns out front. <laughs> yes. I mean, we can do a whole lot better than that. Right. So am I wrong? Is is California a part of this? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. California's part of it, too. And yep. it, and it goes... Sells in California, it takes... Takes a bunch of water out of Colorado. Right, right. That's what that's what I thought. I thought I had seen uh, a special on that one time. Yeah. So that um, so what states would this involve? Oh boy, I mean, I know you're pres- that'd be from <laughs> everything from Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, California. Mm-hmm. I'm probably missing something in there. Is Mexico involved? Well, they're going to be as part of the beneficiary of this because ideally, you know, they actually get water. Right. Right. So because there are a lot of years where no water flows in Mexico. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Okay. So good for them, I guess, even though they're not really technically a part of that. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're, I mean, technically, I think we're supposed to leave some water in for them to get. Yeah. Even though they don't get it usually. They've been yeah. getting the short end of the, the stick for a while. The fact that we actually have something that flows to the sea is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Cool. So. Uh, if you were, if you were to head up now on our trip here and we're kind of getting towards the end, we're, uh, we're heading North and we get into the Pacific Northwest, which I guess is maybe Oregon, maybe North, Northern California, all the way. I mean, can you say all the way to Alaska pretty much? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think there are, there are different issues along there, but I'm going to give you one success story. I mean, you guys saw the reports about the fires out in California and, you know, Washington, Oregon last year. I mean, it was just devastating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and part of that is, you know, some of those were on private lands and doesn't really have a whole lot to do with, you know, federal policy. But, you know, a lot of those were national forests. And we have got a, such a screwed up system of how we fight forest fires and how we pay for fighting forest fires in this country that it directly contributes to getting more forest fires. <laughs> so right now, unlike any other natural disaster, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes. If a catastrophic fire comes through, the Forest Service has to pay for that from its core budget, which means now I think last year they spent almost 60 percent of their budget fighting fires, which means there's no money to go in and do habitat work, to do fire prevention work, to do clearing, mm-hmm. do thinning, any of the things you would need to do to protect communities in the future from other fires. So last year we got a deal finally worked out that takes catastrophic fires basically off budget and moves them over to FEMA, which is where all the other emergency disasters are paid for from. That that will allow the Forest Service to actually get back into the business of managing habitat. And if they're managing habitat, that means they're, you know, not only is that good for fish and wildlife, but that's good for fires. That's good for getting rid of invasive species. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a whole host of different you know, positive impacts. Right. And so, that's going to impact any of those states that have large national forests, including Northern California. So you're, you just said pretty much that the Forest Service is now going to have a 60% increase in available funding. It won't be quite that much because uh-huh. basically only catastrophic fires – Okay. But that's you know probably half of their overall firefighting budget are these just massive fires we've never seen before. Sure. But now that we're seeing all the time, uh-huh. so those are the ones that are taken off. They're, they're still going to have to fight fires from their core budget, just the regular fires, you know, sort of the everyday fires that we've seen in the past. But it won't be this overwhelming burden like they have right now. Yeah, sure. That that is terrific. So, um, does that go along with a, a new look at how we manage forests in the West and, and with you know, uh, maybe more controlled burns and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that, you know, listen, there was, uh, you think back to the early 80s and the sagas of the spotted owl and 
listen to me, we, the pendulum has swung too far. We were cutting way too much timber on mm-hmm. a lot of our national forests. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but now the pendulum is overswung again, and we're not cutting enough wood. Mm-hmm. And to the point where we've also actually lost a lot of mills out there that we need now mm-hmm. if we're going to go back into sort of rational forest management, which includes you know, thinning work, it includes restoration work, it includes you know, sort of doing much more aggressive harvesting around communities, that sort of forest fire interface. Mm-hmm. I mean, the urban you know, forest interface where we see a lot of the fires and where the people get really impacted. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see, you know, just I think also there's been, you know, we put stuff in the farm bill. There was another compromise. We did the forest you know, funding fix to make it easier actually to get wood out of the forest because, you know, largely a lot of the, you know, the forest service you know, would spend you know, a year or two designing a timber sale get everybody bought off on it, most of the environmentalists, you know, the timber you know, the timber community, sportsmen's groups. And then the 11th hour, you know, some group that nobody ever heard of files a lawsuit, and it, you know, takes another two or three years to get it out. Mm-hmm. And so we finally got some stuff in there that sort of protects against that frivolous, you know, kind of you know, fighting for folks who think that every tree is sacred should never be cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, you know, the reality is that you know, active forest management is a good thing in most places. Mm-hmm. Hey, I love wilderness. I love those areas that never get cut. But you need to have that mosaic. You need to have areas that are managed, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. So what else is going on up there? Uh, we got a big river. Everyone's talked about, you know, salmon in the northwest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, salmon populations are in pretty grim shape, you know, all the way up to Alaska. Um, but we have a project uh, that is going to happen beginning, I think, in 2020, where a bunch of dams on the Klamath River are going to come out. They're old dams; they don't produce much power, and the power company Pacific Core, you know, agreed to a you know program that it would basically abandon those dams and have them removed, and federal government would you know oversee that process. And uh, you know that has the best chance for restoring you know salmon in, in that sort of central coast area. The Klamath was right on that Oregon California border. Okay. Okay. And it's beautiful habitat. And if we get rid of these dams, it's going to open up a bunch of areas for you know, spawning that haven't been there for generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a good one. Um, we have, uh, you know, there have been lots of dam removal programs in the Elwha and the Olympic Peninsula outside of Seattle. You know, that came out a couple of years ago. And I'm actually going to, our media summit this year is going to be out in Seattle. So you guys hopefully get to see it. But we're going to do a trip down there. Yeah, you know, before or after the summit. Awesome. And really see that river, see what it looks like now the dams are out, maybe even get to do some fishing. Cool. Wow. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> I have just got to drive over that river once, and it was pretty just, you know, it gets kind of surreal when you get out there on the West Coast and see those big, giant, clear rivers. You know, it's just, I don't know. The, you see big rivers in, in the West, but it's just, it's a different thing when you know that there used to be millions of salmon that run those mm-hmm. right and those salmon are coming back in a hurry in mm-hmm. the Elwha. and uh, it's a great story and i've not been out there and seen it so I'm, I'm excited to go do that yeah 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 very cool and That's then we awesome. go further north up into alaska i mean that is one place that is not screwed up the salmon yet in fact it does a remarkably good job of managing its fisheries overall and salmon included and uh, but even open there there are constantly threats we're having to deal with like the pebble mine of the headwaters of bristol bay and we thought we had that mine pretty much on the, you know, in the coffin with a bunch of nails coming in. But now it's like a zombie. It's raised back <laughs> up again. And, uh, you know, so, you know, thanks to this EPA administration that, you know, sort of has green lighted the permitting for the project. 
you know, the project is could not be a worse design project. It is most two of the largest salmon rivers in the world, the, Q, the Quijack and the Nushigak. And uh, in a scenario where, you know, you know, seismically active zone that, you know, just and it would require this open pit mine and this giant tailings pond that would require eternal, that's forever, you know, uh, mitigation. Mm-hmm. And the notion that we would put that in a place like that and threaten that salmon resource is just remarkable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that we're going to kill this thing eventually. But what we thought was just about dead a while ago is now staggering around again and waiting for a few more blows. <laughs> man. <laughs> blows to the head, Let's right? send the knockouts in, man. We need oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. So lots lots of good things going on. Like you said, I mean, I don't know. This is definitely – this has uh, built my confidence in, in what we're doing. Uh, I'm glad that you made that statement at the beginning about how this is the good old days because – Glad to be alive if that's the case. That's you know? right, man. Um, we appreciate your all your, your knowledge. And, and um, as far as that goes, there's a lot of knowledgeable people that work for the TRCP. What's the best way for for uh, people like us to, to get involved and allow you guys to inform us of the issues? Yeah, so just, uh, you know, we, we don't do magazine. We don't do a direct mail. But just uh, come to our website. You know, it's www.trcp.org. And, uh, you know, sign up as an activist, you know, make a little donation, get a hat, get a knife, get a big enough donation, get a Kimber rifle. Nice. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, and also, you know, listen, we're looking for folks who want to be, you know, activists, who want to be advocates, who want to help us, you know, get the word out in states around the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, if your folks are listeners or game to do that. Yeah, you know, look at look us up. Contact us. You know, we have something. We have ambassadors in a bunch of our states, which are basically, you know, really skilled volunteers that are engaging on certain issues on mm. our behalf. And uh, we'd love to have more of those. Yeah. So, anything the folks can do, we just uh, just don't sit in your recliner and do nothing. <laughs> We're actually right, sitting in recliners <laughs> right now. <laughs> but you guys are doing something. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so that, that's cool. We'll if link to that. you want to sit in your recliner and send us a check, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The money helps too, right? Oh, always. Yeah, so uh, we'll link to that. If you're listening, it, the link to TRCP is in the show notes right here um, below. And Wit, man, we appreciate your time and, like I said, your expertise, your knowledge about all these different things. It it makes me feel small in this world to listen to people <laughs> like you, but that's a good hey, thing. Hey, listen, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just uh, really appreciative you guys are just so committed to getting the word out about this stuff because – you know, a lot of the folks who do the, you know, hunting shows, you know, just, it's all about just the kill sure. and it's not about, you know, why we're able to do this stuff. So I really appreciate you guys getting the word out. Cool. Thanks, Wade. Well, thanks, man. We'll, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you soon. Sounds great, guys. Call anytime. Right. Okay. Have a great evening. All right. You too. See ya. I feel like my mind's eye has at least seen the whole, <laughs> the whole, uh, continental u.s at this point you are almost about to be there anyways you go everywhere <laughs> i do you've seen it all dude i'm uh thinking i'm taking a big trip to one i mean i've still got several places i yeah i haven't seen actually wits country i haven't been up there much i would really I like to either. go see that I, well so i kind of talked about this in the interview with wit but um you know i got to go i got to go up to annapolis maryland mm-hmm. which is in that same area mid mid-atlantic kind of thing uh we played navy up there you know so i got to see that part of the country we went to you know west virginia which is up that way i guess but yeah i haven't been up to the like 
really the Northeast at all. The Rosenbauer country. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Your boy, Tommy. Yeah. Man, you know what? I feel good. Like that that interview oh, yeah. did its its job. You yeah, know, dude. like there's so much of this like doom and gloom, especially by some of the three letter organizations running around out there. <laughs> and we really need to like realize that it's not all bad, no. right? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of good things happening. This world is a good place, and it's better than it used to be. Yeah, right. It's I mean, not like it's like just spiraling down into this, you know, pit of nothingness, that's right? right? Man, it's just crazy. I kind of was talking about it. I was trying to say it without saying it. I guess earlier, but you know, like the L L uh, L W C F is like. If you'd have t- if you'd asked me two months ago, I said that's no, probably not going to pass, mm-hmm. just because of all the media that I had consumed. I guess yeah, you know I yeah. I didn't know, but it just seems like that's the way everybody's talking about and it. it. Like, and it passed with flying colors. Yeah, and this is one of those things where it's like it's probably our own faults because if you get all your information from one place, mm-hmm. it's going to be biased and it's going to be skewed. There's just these natural bias biases. Is that a th- is that that sounds good? Yeah, I like or it. biased. I like it. Yeah. Okay. So. That people have, and sometimes they're more prominent than others, right? Yeah. But if if you don't do your due diligence and get out and learn things on your own and and look for sources nowadays, because apparently like the news isn't going to bring it to us, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you you got to get out and get the real scoop. And yeah. that I was so guilty of that because I just bought into like what the rhetoric was from one place, right? You know. Right. Well, I mean. Our four-letter organization here, TRCP. That's why, dude. They got four letters. That's why they're legit. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> they're doing a good job, man. I feel like, um, you know, like you do, you have to you have to do your research and check up every once in a while. But when you do your research and you find, and I've said this before, you find an organization or two that you feel like you can depend on. Um, that's when you go, okay, this is a busy time in my life. I'm just going to rely and trust these couple of organizations. And in two years, I'll check back in and make sure they're mm-hmm. still doing the right thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's kind of how you have to approach it because you can't, as I mean, I, personally, as just a blue-collar guy that works a lot and has a family, I can't really stay up to date on everything mm-hmm. that I would like to. You know what I mean? Maybe when I'm retired or if I ever do that, you know, then – Maybe I'll have that chance, but um, or if I won the lottery, which I don't play, you know, so gotta play to win, right? That's probably <laughs> I don't not either. <laughs> I just, uh, look, you know, like I get uh, Christmas lottery tickets every year from some of my family members, so hey, you never know. To quote the office, your sister would be happy. I already won the lottery, baby. I was born in the good old U.S. of A. <laughs> that's, right. that's right, dude. That's right. That's that's good enough for me. So anyway, um, yeah, we don't forget we've. Uh, We've linked to the TRCP in this podcast episode. So if you're interested, go check them out. They'll keep you abreast of what's going on. Uh, great organization. We've been really excited to work with them and uh, just thankful that they, that we uh, stumbled out, <laughs> reached out stumbling to them at some point you know, early on. Do you, you remember how this all happened, right? There's a little quick thing how cool social media is. I think uh, – they followed us on social media when we were a right. little bitty baby social media account. <laughs> yeah. And apparently we posted something they thought were was cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's turned into like one of my greatest uh what would you call this? Conservation relationships? Sure. I don't know. Conservationship. Conservationship. There you go. <laughs> Conservation right? relationship. I mean, how many friends and like good people and great knowledge have we obtained through like our 
you know, relationship with TRCP. Yeah. Like most <laughs> yeah. of the ones. For real, dude. For real, dude. It's so educational when we get to go on those media summits, too. It's yeah. just like, I remember we had that uh, with Brian Murphy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, pump fist. We had a CWD rage. Uh, the QDMA <laughs> endorses um, more. What did he say? What's, it? it's the, what's the word? It's a, a moratory or something like moratorium. that. Moratorium. Moratorium, <laughs> yeah, on the, the movement of any live servant. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Dude, he was like ready to punch. If you'd have like tapped him on the shoulder, he would have just smoked you in the face, dude. <laughs> I didn't, dude. He had the Irish thing going at that <laughs> point. He was ready to go. <laughs> he was ready to throw it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. Um, like I said, the link is in the notes here. And then also, uh, we have linked to uh, the Texas Public Land Buck, the first one that Woo! we got. KC got a, a shot, and I thought that made a really great film, man. So I uh, hope you guys, if you haven't seen it, will check that out. And a small game Saturday is coming soon. Uh, we're going to post that video, I think, Tuesday, hopefully, if everything goes right. So lots of cool things going on right now. We're trying to work through this off season together. Uh, let's just be friends and hug it out and hopefully we'll get a turkey season, shed season and, uh, sail into fishing season after that. Ooh, man, it was 73 today. So fishing oh. season might be now. Hey dude, even the birds are starting to sound like spring. Hey, I heard me? geese today. The geese are coming back through. There you go. I heard a hummingbird yesterday. Well, Wit's going to have a hard time finding them. If I know that whenever you said that, <laughs> dude, I was like, you're going to come down here and hunt electronic calls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's hey, cool, it's man. Good, dude. I would, if I could, if I had the amount of decoys and everything to do it, I would do it. Yeah. yeah, so um, I know we're trying to wrap this up, but that ranch he's going to, uh, the state agency I used to work for did the hog control on that ranch. Cool. So a lot of my uh, uh, what counterparts, they uh, went over there and did the aerial operations on that too, and uh, they shot like 7,000 hogs over there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was crazy. That's a lot of bacon. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not bacon. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> we got to wrap it up. We got to wrap it up. I have so many quotes I can do. <laughs> Are you aching for some bacon? <laughs> He's a big pig. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. We got to get out of here. God bless you guys. And remember, this is your element. Living it. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.